The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data, Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about building a business that finds automatic customers. Joining us is John Warlow, who is the president at the Value Builder System, which takes a systematic approach to leveling the playing field for small business owners as they approach their exit. The Value Builder System's goal is to empower 1 million business owners by the year 2030 with a statistically proven methodology that boosts the value of a company by up to 71%. John is also the author of one of the most impactful books I've ever read, which is called Built to Sell. He's also written another book called The Art of Selling Your Business, and he recently published a new book called The Automatic Customer, and he's the host of the Built to Sell radio podcast, which is one of my regular listens. So far this week, John and I have talked about building the Built to Sell business, about his book and his podcast that have been very impactful to me personally, talking about productizing, standardizing, and removing sort of yourself from the daily operations of your business. Yesterday, we talked about the automatic customer, the idea that if you can build reoccurring revenue, it increases the value of your businesses, and there's some sort of standard ways to move yourself from service agreements to consistent revenue. And today, we're going to talk about how to take that business that operates on its own with its reoccurring customers and figuring out how to actually value it. All right, here's the third part of my conversation with John Warlow, the president of the Value Builder System. John, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Good to be back, Ben. Always an honor and a privilege to have you here. Have I mentioned I'm a big fan of your work? <laughs> you have, and I'm very grateful. I hope I got it across. I mentioned in the introduction, you've sort of built a multi-staged empire with helping people understand how to build a business that can be sold. Your recent work, The Automatic Customer, is about understanding how to build reoccurring revenue. So it's not just a business that can operate on its own, but it's got predictability. And all of this goes into kind of the core business that you have the value builder system, which is understanding how to build value, not necessarily revenue. Talk to us a little bit about the value builders system. And how do you think about actually building value in an organization? So the value builder system effectively measures the value of your company and points out eight different drivers that impact your value beyond just your revenue and your profit, which are obviously standard metrics. 
I think from a marketer's perspective, and I know a lot of your listeners are marketers, I think one of the drivers is arguably the most important. We call it monopoly control, which is really a riff on what Warren Buffett talks about when he makes an investment in a company, he looks for a business with a deep and wide competitive moat, right? He's looking for a business that has pricing authority and that they can kind of decide the terms. That kind of competitive moat comes from either two things. Number one, you've got some technology which you've patented and makes you unique. Very few businesses actually have that. A much more common way to give you a competitive moat is through great marketing, great branding, great differentiation that sets you apart from the competitors. And the reason that is such an impactful way to drive the value of your company is if you put your acquirer's hat on for a second and you say, okay, I'm going to go buy a business. Most acquirers are big companies. Most acquirers on average have between five and 20 times the revenue of the business they're buying. If you put yourself in that position for a moment, if you've got a target company you're thinking of buying and they do something that's commoditized, well, you're not going to acquire that company. You're simply going to use your resources to compete with them. It's only when you decide that buying that business will be cheaper and faster than competing with them, does it make sense to buy it? And that happens when you've got a product or service that's highly, highly differentiated, really unique in the marketplace. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we see people making is as they grow their business, they become sort of a mile wide in products and services. The first thing they set out to do, they're differentiated on. But they've heard the old adage in marketing circles that it's like eight times easier to sell a new product to an existing customer than it is to go find a new customer. So they've heard that adage before. And as a result, they go cross-sell a bunch of undifferentiated things. And they end up being this really wide collection of products and services, none of which they're really differentiated on. So that's, I think, the kind of core to building a valuable company beyond just the revenue and profit you have is figuring out one thing where either a product or service that you can really dominate that would make it very difficult for a competitor to compete with you. It's interesting that you talk about differentiation. And I think when most people think about building the value of their company, they think of the bottom line. They think of either the top line or the bottom line. They're either thinking of revenue or they're looking at EBITDA and they're thinking of, well, I get a 5X of revenue or a 3X of EBITDA. And, and you know, somebody is buying the output of this business as opposed to thinking strategically about what the true value is. So how do you separate yourself from when I look at the balance sheet of my business and I see the assets that we have, somebody's going to buy those and the future value of them as opposed to I've created something that will have more value over time because it is different, because it is unique. How do you separate the two of them or are they always just part of the equation? Well, I think it's understanding the different types of buyers. You've got individual investors, private equity groups, and strategic investors. Individual investors and private equity groups effectively are buying your future stream of profit. That's what they're buying. So the more profit you have and the more reliable you can make that profit by using recurring revenue models and making sure it's not dependent on you personally, a bigger multiple of profit they're willing to pay. And usually those two types of acquirers pay a relatively modest multiple of EBITDA. Strategic acquirers are altogether different. Effectively, what they're buying is what your company is worth in their hands. And that's where if you have something truly unique and different, you can get paid a truckload for your company. Let me give you an example because I think it draws the distinction clearly. There's a woman named Stephanie Breedlove who I interviewed who built a payroll company. She did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. Built it up to $9 million of annual revenue when she decided to sell it. 
And she looked out at the universe of people who she might sell the company to. And there was one company that popped out as being highly strategic. And that was care.com. Care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers. My wife and I have been care.com users. There Great place go. to find a babysitter. So yeah, so you plug in your postal code or your zip code and it will give you a list of five-star rated babysitters in your local market. Great service, 7 million subscribers. All of whom, by the way, need to pay their nanny or their babysitter. So Breedlove's payroll service was a perfect peanut butter and jelly combination. Stephanie Breedlove went to them and said, look, we've got 10,000 customers and we've got $9 million of revenue. You've got 7 million subscribers. If 1% of the 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's 70,000 customers. Like that's a business seven times my size. Stephanie Breedlove had a company that was generating around $9 million of revenue. And if you think about roughly, you know, four or five times EBITDA, maybe one times revenue, it was probably worth to a financial buyer around maybe something like nine or 10 million bucks. She sold it for $54 million. Care.com wrote a check for $54 million, fully six times top line revenue. That makes no sense to a private equity group. The valuation of an individual investor would never place that high a valuation on that company. But for Care, it made perfect sense because Breedlove had something that they could plug into their infrastructure and immediately see an ROI on. That's the difference between a strategic acquire and a financial acquire. So for marketers listening to you talking about creating that value, what are some of the things that you recommend that they can do that specifically don't just focus on driving that revenue, but driving that strategic value? The most important thing they can do is not cross-sell. And it's also the most tempting thing that they can do. When Stephanie Breedlove reached $300,000 in revenue, she reached a fork in the road. It was becoming more and more difficult for her to acquire new customers. This is 300 grand in revenue. This is maybe her and one person in her company. And every business pundit, every author, everyone on the stage was saying it's eight times cheaper and faster to cross-sell your existing customers a new product than it is to go find a new customer for your existing product. So she was tempted. Like, what else do busy parents need? They need payroll service. Well, they obviously need payroll service. They need meal delivery service and like dry cleaning delivery, all this stuff, right? So she started going down all these business models and these ideas. And then she's like, hold on a second. That's not what we're good at. We're good at doing payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. And so she took the much more difficult route, which was to go find more parents with a nanny to pay. Ultimately, she built a slower growth company over 25 years to $9 million in revenue, but infinitely more valuable than had she gone and sold a bunch of Me Too, cross-sold a bunch of Me Too products and services to her existing customers. So as marketers, if we're incentivized by top-line revenue, many of us are going to be like, okay, what else can we sell this install base? We've got this great opt-in list. What other goodies can we sell this base? And what I would just encourage you to think about is selling that new product or service widening your competitive moat, or is it diluting your competitive moat? If it's the latter, it may be a fool's errand. You may be juicing the top line revenue, but you're maybe undermining the value of your company. And I think that's the biggest mistake marketers make is just chasing revenue by cross-selling. It's one of the biggest challenges that I think about with my business running the MarTech podcast in, you know, we've got two podcasts that I work on, the MarTech podcast and the Voices of Search podcast. And as we start to scale our operations, and as I start to step away from being an operator and we're working on the business, there's a couple different channels to chase. 
we've got a great installed audience. They're very loyal. Do we start creating products and services for them? Do we go from being a podcast to a newsletter to MarTech courses and certifications, right? Let's call that horizontal expansion. Let's call that vertical expansion. Or do we go horizontal? We've got the MarTech podcast and the Voices of Search podcast. Do I go and try to make five more podcasts and have a business podcast? Or then there's a third channel. Do I go partner with other podcasters and help them figure out monetization because we've done a better job than some of the rest of the industry in terms of monetizing our audience? I honestly don't know which direction to go. And fortunately for me, I'm still so integrated into the business. It's not a problem that I have to solve right now. But next year, well, that's my goal for this year is to be out of the daily operations other than the you know content production. I'm not sure which way to head. What advice do you have for me to figure out vertical versus horizontal expansion? Well, I wouldn't get super marred in the medium through which you deliver what you do because the medium may change right now as podcasting. It could very well change with the evolution of technology. So I would just get really clear about the intersection, you know, where the Venn diagrams connect. So for you, as I understand it, that is marketing and technology. It's not marketing and advertising or technology and HR logistics. It's like where marketing meets technology, that's the intersection which you play in. And I think as long as you're really clear on that, that's going to be attractive to acquirers. I mean, HubSpot, we talked about your newfound partner. I mean, like that's if you build up a big enough audience at the intersection of marketing and technology, guess what? HubSpot wants to know about that company. There are a lot of people that would want to acquire a business that lives at that intersection. It's like talking to somebody who has a great new athletic apparel company, whether they sell through their online store or their physical bricks and mortar store or through Amazon, as long as you've got a fairly diverse sales channels, I think you're fine. You're building. But what I would coach you against is to say, okay, I've got the MarTech, the intersection of marketing and technology, and I'm also going to start a cheeseburger restaurant because I'm going to take some of my revenue from MarTech and build out a cheeseburger restaurant. That's a stupid example, but it just serves to prove the point that you're not going to be differentiated in making cheeseburgers. There's hundreds of those outlets already. I do make a mean cheeseburger, John. I'm sure you do, but it's not at the intersection of marketing and technology. So I would just, cheeseburgers, an outlandish, ridiculous example. But we do see examples where there are these attempts to cross sell just because the customer needs the product or service doesn't mean you should be the one to deliver it. Using your metaphor, I think the question is great. You're, you mentioned it, an apparel brand. We create great shoes. Should we go from creating running shoes to walking shoes to flip-flops to high heels? Or should our the next evolution of our business go from running shoes to other running apparel? And honestly, it's something that we'll test and figure out and hopefully pick the right decision. But it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that sort of horizontal versus vertical expansion idea. Again, I would go back to who the acquirers are because in the apparel example, if you think the natural acquirer for your company is going to be Nike, as an example, well, you're never going to beat Nike on international manufacturing, right? You're never going to beat them on retail distribution. But you might beat them. They don't have a great online footprint. Nike.com doesn't generate a lot of its revenue. So you might say, okay, let's going to be all in apparel online. That's a great attractive company for Nike to acquire, in particular because you're all in, you're digitally native, as an example. But if you try to say, we're going to go vertically integrated and we're going to get up, set up manufacturing facilities in developing countries, they've got that nailed. <laughs> They're not going to value that coming from a small startup, but they would value a new brand that has digitally native content, as an example. That's going to be very attractive to them. So again, I go back to this kind of idea that 
even though you may be 20 years away from wanting to sell your company, making decisions today based on whether it would make you more or less attractive to your natural acquirers, I think you build a better business. And I think that's something that you should always be thinking about as you're marketing your products or services, that the goal here is not always just to create top-line, near-term results. It's not always about revenue. It's about building sustainable growth. It's about building something that's defensible and something that's differentiated. And on the flip side, there's always models out there that you can follow. A lot of what John has written about in his books are how do you replace yourself from your business? How do you start to build in automatic customers? How do you think about value John, you've served as a role model for me in developing this business. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your work and I appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. If I haven't said thank you enough, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you as our guest. Oh, that's very kind, Ben. It's a pleasure. All right. That wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to John Warlow, the president of the Value Builders System. If you'd like to get in touch with John, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is John Warlow, J-O-H-N-W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. You can visit his company's website, which is the valuebuildersystem.com. John also runs the builttosell.com site, and they put some assets together for you specifically in the MarTech audience. If you're interested in finding a little bit more of what John put together for the MarTechers, go to builttosell.com slash MarTech. Just one more link in our show notes I'd like to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our once a week newsletter and you can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is martechpod, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day this year. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.